Welcome to The Last Thing I Saw. I'm your host, Nicholas Rapold. It's August, and that means it's time to talk about the Locarno Film Festival, which, for years, has been a reliable launching pad for stimulating and challenging cinema. This year, I'm back talking about the festival with the critic and programmer Jordan Cronk. Our highlights from the festival include a raw adaptation of Medea from Russia by Alex Zeldovich, a spectacular debut feature called A New Old Play from a Chinese artist looking at the afterlife, and the Indonesian genre film Vengeance is Mine, All Others Pay Cash. Welcome to The Last Thing I Saw. This is a festival episode, so that means we're going to be going through some highlights, and the festival in question is the Locarno Festival, which is powering forward with in-person screenings, um, but they also had a virtual option that was good for me. I'm very happy to be talking with Jordan Kronk about this, a uh, definitely a, a veteran of the festival, I think in all of its incarnations <laughs> over the past uh, decade, um, and also has does programming of, of his own. Uh, welcome, Jordan. Hi, Nick. Thanks for having me back. And, and you just went, you went to Cannes. So, you know, the prospect of, of rolling right over into Locarno, and since you were already going to a festival in between, um, that just sounded a lot. <laughs> yeah, I decided to skip the in-person Locarno experiences here, unfortunately. Um, yeah, like you said, I went to Cannes, and then I went actually straight to Fid Marseille for five days after that. But it was interesting to see it, or watch kind of the movies in the virtual space because I guess Locarno is the first major festival to do a hybrid model, like with, you know, to have a full in-person festival and a virtual component. So it's an interesting dynamic, I guess. And not every festival is moving ahead in that way. Like New York, for example, is not, seems like not going to offer that option. Yeah. I mean, I guess what distinguishes it is that it was a, a in-person option for also, you know, international guests. I mean, I guess different festivals have tried things where they have an in-person, but it's really mostly just for people who are kind of there already. Right. This is a different different kind of um, effort. You know, it's always a challenge because not every film is going to be available virtually when they have their digital library. Yeah, it's going to be something to keep an eye on because it's kind of a weird situation where now festivals are allowed to have in-person components, but on the virtual side, if the rights holders and sales companies don't want the films on the platform, now they don't have to you know, willingly give them over like they did during the pandemic, which was like kind of the only option for the films. So now, I mean, just speaking based on Locarno, like there were probably, I don't know, only 10 of the 17 um, competition films in the library, which you know, it can pose a problem for some critics and people like that who choose the virtual component without knowing what movies are going to be in there. And I would say, you know, all the titles with directors who people know were not in there. So it's kind of an interesting thing. And I mean, obviously, like we said, New York is opting out of that. But I know Sundance is going to be hybrid. And um, I don't know what Rotterdam's going to be like. But, you know, there's different, or TIFF is going to be, I guess, uh, both as well, hybrid. So we'll see how those mm. work out. I've heard TIFF is going to have most of the films in their library. So, you know, it depends on the festival, but I think it's kind of a weird uh, in-between or gray area now that these festivals are trying to navigate. Yeah. I mean, it's obviously a little different, but this maybe overlaps a little with the ongoing debate about, you know, availability of press screenings and press screeners. Right. And also 
that then spills over into the other debate, you know, as, as filmmakers also complain about how their films are going to be going to platforms at the same time as they're going to screenings. So it's kind of a battle royale of a lot of different concerns at once, even though it seems a, a, at first blush an, an issue like limited to festival reporting, but it's, it's there. Yeah, it's actually all, all these other issues going on. Yeah, exactly. You know, what was your impressions just generally of, of the lineup and, you know, whatever, whatever you feel comfortable saying? Well, I guess I should preface this by saying that uh, I run an organization called Acropolis Cinema, whose major event every year is the Locarno in Los Angeles Film Festival, which is a satellite edition of Locarno. So we, me and uh, my co-programmer, Bob Kohler, we program what we feel are the best films from Locarno uh, and show them uh, in Los Angeles over uh, three or four days. So we've been doing that for five years and hope to continue it this year. But like you mentioned, Nick, there's been a, uh, a th- well, three changeovers, I guess, since we've been doing our festival with Carlo being uh, you know, the director for many seven years or so from 2010 to 17, I think. And then uh, Lily Hinston uh, took over um, and she did a great job and was there for two years. But last year, there were no premieres of new films, but they did have a interesting program called uh, The Films After Tomorrow, which was like a a way to help films that were stopped because of the pandemic. And that had films by like uh, Lucretia Martel and uh, Miguel Gomez and people like that. So yeah, she had two years and there was some, for a reason still not totally clear, she uh, she stepped away and they brought in Jonah, who is an Italian, uh, Swiss Italian um, critic and curator. He's done work with Venice. Um, but yeah, he kind of made some waves, I guess, right when he took over and has been up until the festival started with some interviews saying... Uh, you know, that he's going to make the f- festival more audience friendly and program more more genre films, which is definitely the case. And yeah, I, I guess the reason that's kind of, I don't know, controversial in some circles is because Locarno's kind of been the the staunchly art cinema festival for, for a very, very long time, and especially the last 10 years or so. So yeah, he is uh, reorienting the, I guess, the philosophy of the festival a little bit. But yeah, there, there, there's been a ton of genre f- uh, films in the, fest- in the festival in the past, but this year definitely has more of that little more commercial uh, dimension to some of the uh, competition films and even in Filmmakers of the Present. He eliminated the Moving Ahead section, which was the kind of section for artist films and like real adventurous filmmaking. So that was uh, kind of sad and uh, caused a little bit of uproar (laughs) so i wish that section was still there but there are many good films though still in the festival and i think uh some of the best ones actually were uh the genre films so that might be interesting to talk about some of the really bad ones were also genre films but (laughs) i don't i don't think it comes down to uh if something's a genre film or not if it's going to obviously be good or bad as as you know you know a bad genre film is just as bad as a you know a really boring slow cinema film that can be equally awful Um, so (laughs) yeah uh, and there were examples of both of those, honestly. So I think it'll be interesting to see how they go forward uh, or how this lineup, I guess, went over with audiences since that was the, I guess, the idea to kind of program some certain films in the competition that would normally not be there. So, and, and they're in a weird situation too with, you know, the comeback year for all these big festivals like Cannes and Venice. They're going to, you know, take the lion's share of the big names. So there aren't a ton of like uh, big art house auteurs at least on the level of past years with, you know, recent winners of the grand prize or the golden leopard have been like Pedro Costa and Vlad Diaz and uh, Albert Serra and Wang Bing. But uh, a lot of discoveries and the kind of up and coming filmmakers, I think made a nice showing for themselves. 
Yeah. I mean, it is another one-off year in the sense that you have this weird crowding of what films are available. And yeah, it's just a crowded moment. And so sure. I'm, I'm sure things will continue to evolve. And the genre thing is such an interesting observation because, uh, you know, with the, the Colacarno programming, it's always been kind of an adjacent interest. You know, the retrospectives yeah. uh, have, have always been such a feast um, in, in, the, in that regard. You know, I, I can't get out of my head like the, the Jacques Tourneur mm-hmm. uh, retrospective. Yeah, and I'm, I think of like, I just look back over the programs recent years, there's been movies like Space Dogs and LaFleur and Destruction Babies. These are like very much genre films. So it's always been there. It, it might just be played up a little bit more this year and a little more of a presence of these kind of films. But I don't think it's as kind of radically overhauled as it might seem. Yeah. Well, let's let's dive into some of these some of these films. So, I mean, what would you like to to start with? I know people are curious about the uh, the, the Abel Ferrara movie, but right. I, I I'm also I'm intrigued by the movie A New Old Play. I don't know if oh, that's right. too much to, <laughs> to, to, to bite off the chew to start off with, but I'm I'm definitely so curious about that. Sure, we can start with that one. Yeah, so this is like Nick says called A New Old Play. It's the first fiction film by a an artist uh, filmmaker who's made a number of documentaries. Um, this film won the jury prize, which is, I guess, effectively the second prize. And it is, like I said, his first fiction film, but it kind of is inspired by his father's and his family's background in Chinese theater. So this film is, I guess, a period piece, but it's all filmed on stages and uh, very artificial looking, and it um, it kind of tells the story of a clown actor who is dying or about to die and is being kind of led into hell by a couple of uh, I don't know court jester like like figures. Before he dies, or he's kind of in like a purgatory, he starts to reminisce about his kind of I don't know half century in the theater. Um, so it's, t- it's told in a kind of flashback style where he's kind of like going to hell. And talking to these two kind of goofy characters and he's uh telling kind of recapping the history of this theatrical troupe but it's set against the backdrop of you know half a century of chinese history so it spans from i think about the 20s till you know getting close to the 60s and 70s so as it kind of tells the story of how this troupe came together and goes through some of their you know routines and their ups and downs kind of in the backdrop of that you see kind of uh you know the war with japan in the 30s in the 40s, there is kind of the struggle with the nationalists and the communists, and it touches on the People's Liberation Army, the formation, and kind of the dawn of the Mao era, and kind of the oppression of art and artists in that era. But it's told over three hours, and like I said, it's all done in a, a very colorful, artificial style on sound stages, and it's shot in a very like tableau framings, kind of like diorama-looking compositions. And it's extremely like precisely composed and shot. It's very beautiful. And it's very, I don't know, kind of moving and just uh, very detailed as far as like the, the amount of ground it covers. And it, I mean, I, I know I'm missing a lot of uh, kind of the details on or nuances of actually like what's going on in the history of China, but it, it touches on many, what seems ma- many major uh, events and time periods. And yeah, it's it's really auspicious, I think, uh, feature or narrative debut for this filmmaker, who I think has had films on Locarno before, but like I said, they were documentaries. But yeah, it was what I thought was actually going to win the the top prize, but it ended up 
taking the second prize, but it is quite, I think, a, quite an accomplishment. But that's the, the gist, I guess. The movie it kind of reminded me of, I don't know, there's probably many uh, things you could compare it to, but you know the Kurosawa movie, uh, Dodeska Den, which is kind of done in a oh, very yeah. theatrical style where he's coloring the sets and stuff like that. It sort of mm-hmm. has that visual look to it. Yeah. And yeah, that, that was the, the one movie that I kept kind of going back to as I was watching it. Mm. But uh, it's a very kind of like impressively staged and mounted film. Yeah. It sounded like, I mean, it kind of sounded like the sort of discovery you, you watch Locarno movies for. Yeah. The notion that this is a debut feature is is kind of incredible, obviously very ambitious. And Dodeska Den, that's, that's the even better touchstone than what came to mind for me, which was... Uh, Hosasian puppet master. Oh right, yeah, yeah. That's actually, yeah. I would say, like historically, or like even some of the framings in that, I would say is probably a good comparison for sure. Mm, also, pretty good title. Yeah, <laughs> the kind of title where it's something so simple but so kind of cool. A new old play, um, Chu Zhang Zhang. But that that gives us a good segue to talk about another movie that was on your uh, list of films to spotlight. It's a film by Edwin, Indonesian director. This movie is called Vengeance is Mine, All Others Pay Cash, which this festival, say what you will, had a number of amazing uh, movie titles, this being one of them. Um, (laughs) But yes, Edwin is a fairly prolific filmmaker, although this is, or what seems like it's going to be by by far the most well-traveled and kind of acclaimed one. It won the the top prize, the Golden Leopard. Something of a surprise, I guess. I mean, it's it's a very good movie, but it is very much a genre film. It's... um, based on a book by an Indonesian writer who I get from what I've read now after the film was premiered, he's kind of like the Indonesian Quentin Tarantino in like novelist form. <laughs> um, he writes, these kind of like uh, huh. homages to seventies and eighties, like exploitation movies. So this movie is set in 1989 and it's made in the style of a eighties action, Indonesian action film. It stars uh, two actors. The characters' names are Ajo and Ityong. Ajo's a impotent kind of gangster, so he uh, he can't perform in the bedroom, but he makes up for it by going out and roughing up anyone and everyone that comes in his path. So uh, the the way it goes and the way Edwin really uh, the direction he takes it, I think, is very interesting and different. So he the character eventually meets uh, or doesn't meet gets in a fight with this woman who turns out to be his wife or, you know, ends up being his wife soon after that. They get in a very long and funny fight scene right at the beginning of the movie that goes on for an extended period of time at a construction site. After fighting, they fall in love. And, uh, but one of the interesting things I think about the movie is um, it's all or mostly done with, you know, practical effects and the fighting is all what looks to be, you know, choreographed in, you know, in person and in camera, so to speak. Uh, with not a lot of uh, visual effects in, in any kind of a computer-generated way. Uh, there looks to be like some wire work going on. So it, it's kind of like dated in that way. But it's supposed to obviously be paying homage to these movies of the period. So it's kind of humorous. But I think also uh, I had more fun watching it than I have or I have uh, watching, you know, contemporary action movies that, you know, everything is done with visual effects and computer right. or CGI. Yeah, so it's very well staged and well mounted as far as like the action goes, and the the action's always very very funny. I mean, I and I guess we should mention it's the whole idea behind the film for Edwin at least is to kind of critique 
masculinity and kind of these macho action films. Mm. Yeah, well, it's almost like he's making what sometimes is a subtext of like gangster movies and into part of the, the kind of surface he's bringing it, bringing right. it to the fore. But yeah, Vengeance is mine. I guess that's the Golden Leopard. I've said it before, but it's kind of funny to me that so many of these awards seem to be like animals. You got the <laughs> You have the leopards, the lions, the and the bears. Yep. <laughs> I mean, in a way, that that kind of brings us to the Abel Ferrara joint, zeros and ones. When I interviewed him earlier uh, this summer, he was editing it then, hmm. but he was already excited to go to Locarno. He was already planning to go to Locarno, so oh, I well. guess they they saw some cut of it already. Yeah. Um, but uh, what what did you think of it? Well, I liked it quite a bit. I guess I should say Ferrara is one of my favorite filmmakers. And especially, I think, in the last uh, eight to nine years, I think he's been working at a extremely high level pretty much since uh, 444, Last Day on Earth. I don't know if he's really missed a beat. Everything he's done, at least in his narrative films, have been, I think, pretty special. This film, though, I feel is uh, it's very strong, but I don't know if it's going to go over quite as well as some of his others. It's quite... Uh, opaque and abstract. It is, I guess, a political thriller uh, shot during the pandemic, uh, during lockdown in Rome, or set during uh, a Rome that is supposed to be locked down. I don't know if it was actually locked down because uh, they're obviously outside filming, but uh, it stars Ethan Hawke uh, in a dual role as a, a soldier, an American soldier in Rome, and uh, his brother, who is kind of a, I don't know, anarchist revolutionist, revolutionary, and he from what we gather has been imprisoned or kidnapped. And uh, the soldier character that Ethan Hawke plays his name is JJ. He's out there what seems to be to uh, rescue his brother, but as kind of things move along, it kind of becomes questionable what his motives are there. If he's actually there to rescue his brother, because he starts to cross paths with a number of uh, different, I don't know, subcultures. There's Chinese gangsters involved, the Russian secret service. There's a, kind of Muslim priests and people like this that he continues to talk with. And uh, it uh, kind of revolves around the blowing up of the Vatican, which is kind of a, would seem like in a normal movie would be like a big climax or something, which just kind of happens offhand in this movie fairly soon into it <laughs> and, and done with like very cheap effects. And it just kind of happens and they don't really mention it in the, in the dialogue or anything. It just kind of uh, transpires. Um, oh my God. So all these kind of what seem to be terrorist activities going on in the city, but it becomes uh, suggested that Ethan Hawke's soldier character might be, I don't know, involved in some capacity. But like I said, nothing is really uh, explained or spelled out. And I think Ferrara has been, you know, heard an interview with him and read a couple things. He, the whole idea, I think, was to kind of emphasize the the fact that we don't know who our enemies are anymore. Every, any anyone and everyone can be can be an enemy, I guess. And we facts are not what they used to be in some cases. So it, it seems to just be kind of a, a reflection of the current moment. I mean, clearly it's set during the pandemic. There's everyone's wearing masks. Uh, there's hand sanitizer plays a, a role in the, in the plot, huh. but it's uh it's shot by Sean Price Williams, um, who has people probably know he's worked with, uh, with Safies and the Robert Green and a bunch of uh, indie directors. But this movie is kind of reminds me of like a, uh, like a late period Michael Mann film or a late period mm. Tony Scott film in the, in the visuals. It's very kind of like uh, well, it's handheld, but it's very like 
images are kind of smeared and blurry. It's all shot at night. The entire movie, except for the very end, is shot at night. So it's very low lit and uh, colors are very muted and just like it turns into this kind of like abstract aesthetic experience. I think kind of furthered along by the fact that the plot is kind of incomprehensible if you try to like actually dive into it because like I said, nothing, none of the kind of character connections are ever really laid out in a, in a legible way. It's only 75 minutes and it's very like uh, focused and streamlined as far as like he, it starts with Ethan Hawke showing up in the city and he gets right, you know, goes to the first person he's there to meet. And it just like kind of revolves through different episodes of him kind of getting into various uh, precarious situations as threats loom in the, in the periphery. So it's very, uh, I don't know, kind of a mysterious film, but I think extremely well-made. And uh, Ethan Hawke is actually quite good in it. Uh, like I said, in a, in a dual role of playing twin brothers. And he also shows up at the beginning and end in kind of a weird uh, meta interview thing where he introduces the film. And then at the end, he's also talking about the film afterward. And it, I don't want to give anything away about what he says, I guess, but he, he also shows up as himself. So it's kind of a third role for him. <laughs> he certainly put him to work. He put Ethan Hawke to work. <laughs> mm-hmm. The mood of it is intriguing because I, I think that's something that always sticks with me about, you know, even an Abel Ferrara movie that doesn't achieve its full potential, um, which I think happens because he's always searching. He's always kind of pushing things. Yeah. But, you know, all of his movies have these kind of distinct moods that I can't, you know, I can't shake. And the fact that you're comparing it to Michael Mann, I don't know if you're you're thinking of Black Hat or something yeah, like that. Yeah, Black Hat, yeah. And and Public Enemies, just in like the way it's the aesthetic of it. Oh, yeah. It's just like, a, I don't know, maybe he's made a vulgar a tourist film, <laughs> but <laughs> it, it does kind of remind me of the visuals that you would see in the last few Tony Scott films. And also reminded me of a Jersey Skolomowski's Essential Killing as far as uh, oh, the kind yeah. of just forward momentum of the whole thing. But um it, uh, I don't know, maybe it is, it is like a mood piece, I guess, sort of, because like I said, the plot isn't very uh, comprehensible, but maybe more in line with the movies he was making kind of at the turn of the century, like Nero's Hotel and these kind of like mm-hmm. amorphous, uh, I don't know, compact films as far as like the length. They're very short, but they're kind of like, I don't know, just very abstract and, you know, foreground, I don't know, sensory details and the aesthetic over the over the narrative. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting that he has, I mean, he has a couple couple of threads of movies he, he's making where it's either the end of the world yeah. in some way, basically, whether that means like it's literally the case or it's kind of psychologically the case is, you know, a bunch of people locked in a room and, uh, you know, uh, either literally or not. And then, you know, these movies that are kind of dream journeys in, in, yeah, yeah. in a way and Siberia totally. was, was definitely like that. Yeah, I don't know. Siberia was total like... I don't know, it seemed very personal and psychological or like a, a purging or an exorcism of some, you don't know, whatever things or ideas he was going through. Whereas this one is more of like surreal in a different way, I guess, and a, a reflection just, I think, on like a more broader social kind of climate or feeling. Because I think it sort of encapsulates, it has a very strange, like, it's kind of stupid or like cliche to be like, oh, it's got like a pandemic feel, but it has a very just kind of like ambient uh, dread laying on top of it or just like mm. you know you, you just feel like a undercurrent of just something's not right obviously and things do go wrong in many cases but it's just got a feeling of unease that kind of courses through the whole thing yeah well i guess the world is the world is catching up to april for <laughs> <laughs> yes. doom 
And he won the Best Director Prize, so that was kind of fun to oh, see. Great. And his wife, Christina Chiriak, uh, plays a Russian gangster in the movie, so that's always that's fun. <laughs> <laughs> oh wow, yeah. I think she's in she's in Siberia, right? She's yeah, and she was in uh, Tommaso as well. So Tommaso. she's like in most of his movies now. And his daughter, or their daughter, is is in this movie too, very briefly. It's been interesting since he's. We've talked, I think, a couple times on the podcast about kind of veteran directors making new movies in Europe, and he's another big example who's been making mm-hmm. movies in Rome for the last handful of years. And there's probably definitely something to be discussed or written about these films after he has left, uh, definitely left Hollywood, but definitely le- uh, left just the U.S. filmmaking in general. Yeah, yeah, it's like a reverse migration uh, in a way. It's funny. Yeah. We we just uh, I was just talking about Billy Wilder on the previous episode. And in, in that case, you know, uh, being one of the kind of core of, of emigre directors that basically made <laughs> a lot of what we know as classic Hollywood, uh, what it is. And yeah, well, we had last podcast I was on, we talked about Verhoeven, which was interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Well, he's the Dutch, the Dutch man who came to the U S and then went right back to, <laughs> to, to, to France. And to, yeah. Yeah. And uh, I guess Sean Penn sort of, so, <laughs> or is this ma- making money with other, with not non-US money, so. Sean Penn is a citizen of the world. That's what is, he is. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So that's uh, Zeros and Ones, uh, Abel Ferrara. And yeah, as you said, that is coming out later this fall. So that's one movie that, um, yeah. that everyone can can catch up with. I, I think it's also a Lionsgate release, just like Siberia was. Yeah, I think it's supposed to come out in November or thereabouts. Yeah. Okay. That's good. I mean, I also feel like he's a guy who, you know, has had his ins and outs with the distribution over the past (laughs) 10 to 15 years. So it seems like he's found a home there. So that brings us to, I guess, maybe just the last couple of films. I mean, maybe we can talk about something that's sort of kind of completely different in some ways, which is The Sacred Spirit. Sure. This is a movie, I mean... I don't know. Maybe I'll maybe I'll describe it, and if I if I'm leaving something out, let me let me know. It's sure. uh, <laughs> the Sacred Spirit is a Spanish Spain Spanish uh, filmmaker, and it's about a a mother. She has I guess twins, and one has been kidnapped, so she's looking for that daughter. Um, but and the other daughter, so you know, she's worried about her. Now the mother has a brother, who is kind of the, the ends up kind of being more of a focal point in the movie who is, I don't know, schlubby guy who has basically like a UFO believers support group Um, or, I don't know, community club, uh, depending how you look at it. And they talk about, they trade occult information about ufology. They, They have a speaker who comes and gives this pretty creepy doomsday human sacrifice lecture. And it turns out that this is more than just a curiosity for this guy and uh, more than just a hobby, really. It really seems to consume him. Yeah, without giving too much away, he basically starts like undertaking or kind of trying to follow some grand plan that he believes in, in terms of meeting aliens. And he, at the same time, (laughs) his sister puts him in charge of his niece, uh, her daughter, you know, while she is busily working and looking for the other daughter. So uh, that is a perilous (laughs) recipe. (laughs) And I mean, that's the story. And 
I, this movie was really strange. Um, I mean, I think it was strange yeah. in an interesting way, but I, I also was kind of unsettled by it mm-hmm. in, in other ways. I mean, basically it's really grounded in the kind of mundaneness of people's lives. Um, and I have to say there is a touch of like, I don't know, two thousands uh, American indie kind of nerdiness to mm-hmm. the, the, the people, the group of people, these UFO fans that it's focused on. I mean, I did think, uh, at least once of Napoleon Dynamite. <laughs> because, I mean, for example, like one of the group, I think there's one woman in the group who, like someone asks her about this potato salad or something that she brought and she just kind of cannot stop talking about the potato salad. And it's just this kind of quirk, you know, it's this kind of quirky sort of thing. And so they don't seem sinister as a result of this, but they also, I was kind of on on the edge of feeling that, oh, these are kind of just regular people and feeling that they were a little bit, I don't know, he was kind of leaning a little bit on their eccentricity. Um, I mean, on the other hand, they wholeheartedly believe in UFOs. So I guess, yeah, they are maybe a little eccentric. Yeah. So there's that. And then the movie, uh, in a way, because it set you up with these people who seem a little harmlessly odd, and then it gets in kind of darker stuff because you know, this uncle, he connects with a man who claims to be, I don't know, channeling some other entity, basically, of someone who is no longer on this earth or something like that. And that's, maybe it happens early, but that's when the movie got like really dark for me. Yeah. Um, and there's there's a scene where technically nothing happens on screen. It's a scene of just waiting. And you're actually waiting in the uncle's apartment while a guest is there uh, with the niece. Um, and I didn't know how I felt about that scene because it felt like it was leaning on the suspense of what's going on. Um, is it not just about UFOs now? Um, and again, I don't want to give away what happens later because I do think the movie kind of leans, not in a bad way, it's just the way it's structurally set up, realizing that people are believing one thing, but maybe something else is happening. And I, I don't know if I had to put a bow on it. It was for me, a movie about the kind of small mindedness that can afflict the kind of community mm-hmm. and so that people become kind of servants, unwitting servants or witting, I don't really know, of something evil, <laughs> basically, yeah. um, which is maybe just a story for our time. I mean, that's arguably how some people could describe a recent American election. <laughs> but anyway, that's sorry. I kind of went on with it, but it's a movie that was really kind of boring a hole in my head for some reason. I don't know. What, what, yeah. what did you make of it? I mean, I really liked it. I mean, I think that is exactly what it's about. Um, you know, it's it's about the small, quirky community, but it's about how these groups can be used and manipulated for other other means. Like you said, we don't want to get in too deep into kind of what the movie is actually about, but it. Uh, what I found interesting about it is that the director, I don't know, doesn't uh, make fun of the this group of uh, kind of UFO believers. He, I feel like they're very like lovingly depicted and they're, they are quirky and odd, but uh, he's not making fun of them. I don't think. And there's a mystical quality to the entire movie. Every character is involved in some, I don't know, psychic or uh, kind of conspiratorial uh, line of uh, thinking. But um, yeah, I just found it very interesting that you watch pretty much, you know, over half the movie kind of you're sympathetic with these people and then when you when the movie switches gears a little bit, you're not not sympathetic to them, but you're you start to really think about kind of how these groups operate and how things that they'll uh, let pass or disregard in service of 
getting things they want done or continuing that their their lifestyle or their way of thinking, uh, which I found very interesting. And I think the movie, I mean, just in general, is beautifully shot on 16 millimeter, uh, looks great and is quite humorous and funny and also eventually very disturbing. But I think uh, kind of one of the more unique films and another quasi-genre film. I mean, this is kind of a sci-fi movie in its own way. Uh, there's a great scene near the end where the the UFO, you, how do you say it? ufology uh, group <laughs> right. kind of, I never have actually said that word aloud. Ufology right, yeah. believers, they go out to uh, like the desert and they get in these glowing pod things and to kind of like uh, connect with aliens or whatever they think's going to happen. Yeah. But it's shot in this really amazing way with all these uh, amazing lights and things like that. So uh, yeah, it was just like a pleasurable film from an aesthetic standpoint. Uh, but I think it does have some interesting things uh, to say and things going on under the surface. Yeah. The director's from this town. I don't know if this town has a kind of a cult, this kind of culture going on all the time. I'd be interested to hear what he says, but you can tell that he is very familiar with this community in this area of, the, of Spain. Yeah. And, and, and I, I looked up the director's name, um, Chema Garcia Ibarra. I mean, seeing a movie like this, it's it does feel personal in the sense that it's comes out of being hemmed in in, 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 a, in a community like that, and 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 just thinking, oh God, this is, <laughs> you know, this is kind of like stifling and easily could could cause something. And and in a way, I, I also did think just a little bit about Buñuel because you know the same kind of or similar kind of small mindedness is all over Bunuel in terms of catholicism and mm-hmm. i think there's there's i do remember like one cut in the movie that's pretty explicit about i don't know maybe it was going from one of these meetings uh, the Uf- ufo meetings to like a, a street procession yeah yeah that might be in the mix there so yeah it's a movie that genuinely uh, surprised me and that's always pretty good yeah that did win something, though, right? Didn't it? Or yeah, it won um, another. Not the jury prize, obviously, but it won whatever the prize. I think under under that would be. So, in the sense that the the prize givers agree with us, uh, it was a very wise <laughs> choice of prizes. Yes. <laughs> I actually think the the prize winners in general, almost every movie I liked, uh, won a prize in some capacity. Yeah. So that's uh, the Sacred Spirit. I guess uh, one more film we could talk about is Medea. Do you want to just talk about, describe that a little or? <laughs> I can try. <laughs> These movies are not easy to uh, I know. sum up. And I'm, it's like my least uh, favorite thing of doing these is kind of trying to sum them up. But this is especially yeah. hard. So this is uh, only the fourth film in 30 plus years from a Russian director named Alexander Zeldovich. His last film was called Target. It was made 10 years ago. Uh, a very good sci-fi movie, kind of a, yeah. a UFO in another way, kind of a, a very strange kind of object. But yeah, he's made essentially one movie a a decade since the very early 90s. So this is a modern update of the Greek myth of the title. It is transposed to modern day Israel. Um, Although, like I said, it's made by a Russian filmmaker. And the the main character is uh, a Russian chemist who uh, we learn very early on that she uh, is going to kill her... uh, her corrupt cop brother because she's her brother's blackmailing uh, her lover who is a, a Jewish Russian man who he's like a millionaire of some sort. He's a businessman. Yeah. Some sort of industrialist. Yeah. So she, she kills her brother to be with her lover who's married, but they decide to move uh, to Jerusalem to pursue their, uh, or pursue his religion. But uh, she also wants to convert to Judaism. So they move there and he divorces his wife 
And so, you know, after kind of an opening, uh, a prologue-ish opening, it, it moves to Jerusalem for the remainder of the film where uh, the husband eventually finds out that the wife killed uh, her brother and he's none too happy about this and also frustrated with other things. And they break up, which sends Medea on a tailspin of searching for religion and also exploring her sexuality. So it's kind of an episodic uh, journey for her. She essentially has sex with random men in a variety of locales over the course of the film. And she has a weird condition where she, I guess, passes out during sex um, and also becomes increasingly like sadomasochistic and wants various things inflicted on her. So uh, she's wrestling with this kind of uh, sexual urges and also religious uh, calling, I guess. But it is an extremely, uh, I don't know, very fascinating, but also I think provocative and problematic movie in some ways as well, uh, which I find very stimulating and interesting. But um, Zeldovich shoots in this very like uh, super widescreen, like immaculately precise compositions, not a lot of moving camera. And this actress who uh, she's... I think Georgian, uh, I'm not mm-hmm. even going to attempt her name, but she is really wonderful in the role, but it's a, it's a role with very like raw and vulnerable performance. Reminded me of Possession, the Zawowski film in some ways, where she's mm. kind of constantly on the verge of cracking up. She's breaking down, freaking out, kind of like writhing around in some scenes and having essentially this like a psychological breakdown over the course of the film and all the people she's having sex with are like, I don't know, allegorical figures of some sort. One's like a a descendant of Jewish royalty. And there's another like clairvoyant Israeli officer and another guy's potentially like a demon of some sort. And there's an artist figure. Uh, so she's making her way through all these men while she's uh, trying to get her lover back and also find her way on this existential journey, I guess. But uh, it is epic in the way that Zeldovich's films are, which is like uh, the scope of it is quite large and it covers a lot of ground, but it's very, uh, I don't know, intimate and in kind of visceral in the kind of subject matter and the lengths he pushes, uh, certainly this actress, but yeah, just kind of like the themes and the, the ideas and kind of very loosely working around this Greek myth. Yeah, it is an intense movie. And, and you know, it's not just over in a second either. You, you really go with her on a pretty like arduous journey that's, you know, perched somewhere between like self-realization and kind of self-negation at times where yeah yeah i couldn't always tell if she was living her best life or living in the sense of just like okay i'm just gonna do whatever i want yeah or if she was yeah in some way kind of seeking some oblivion and i think the actress kind of keeps that an, an open open text uh, in, in that way and she's in a terrible emotional state also because she is far from her children because her husband, I think basically has the custody of, of the two kids. Right. Um, so for, there's this long stretch where she's kind of out of the wilderness. I mean, she's in Jerusalem, but she's kind of in, in the wilderness alone in a way. And she cared, cared so much about her, her kids. And if you know the story of Medea, uh, <laughs> there's no spoiler alert for Greek tragedy, I think. <laughs> um, suffice to say that the movie does <laughs> include the infamous uh, you know, ending of Medea, where, you know, in order to maximally devastate her unfaithful lover, who she sees as committing the ultimate betrayal, she uh, she retaliates. And 
that sequence is is interesting itself. I, I will leave that undescribed because it, it has its own reimagination mm-hmm. of that part of the, the tragedy. And I think, you know, you mentioned the use of widescreen and these kind of wide angle shots. You know, sometimes he'll even just be sticking to that. And I, you know, the reason I mentioned that is because he is also a theater director. Mm. And I think that comes into play somewhat in how he conceives of scenes. And I think his set designer is also, you know, a theater set designer. And I have to say, like, there's one, there's like a sex scene with the, the artist who claims he's he's royalty, um, which is in this kind of graffitied courtyard or something. Oh, right. And they keep that in a long shot. And I thought partly felt it was partly just because they were all just so intent on giving us the mise-en-scene of, yeah. of that, you know. Yeah, it's one of those films that kind of foregrounds the formal qualities and the aesthetic and mm-hmm. which can lead to some debates over how certain aspects of the action or the drama is being portrayed because it, it definitely, uh, I don't know, aestheticizes certain, uh, not problematic, but just uh, unnerving uh, kind of activities or, or sequences that I, I could see some people having issues with. Yeah, no, I think there are a lot of, I, I really want to see and, and read people talking about this movie because yeah there are many many more readings that one one can do of it and and you know Medea itself is such an interesting text to to revisit now this figure of in one way righteous fury but also this kind of uncontrolled you know irrational force and I don't know there's also the aspect where she, I guess in the original play she is kind of uh, from a witching <laughs> background so and she's she's kind of a foreigner to to, to Greece so those are also elements in it so. There's a lot going on in it. And then, of course, I think also what Zeldovich brings into play is the, you know, they, they start off in Russia. And, and part of the reason why they leave also is that her brother is a FSB agent, CIA kind of person, um, and is shake, basically shaking down her husband, um, it seems like. And so that's right. part of why they leave. So that's also part of it and obviously targets the kind of moneyed class and corruption is is throughout that that work and, and is part of part of this one too so that's also in it so yeah there's a lot <laughs> there's a lot going a lot going on in, in, in Medea the, the movie <laughs> yeah and we didn't even mention like she one of her big hang-ups is she's concerned about aging so she's very uh, oh, yeah. she's always asking yeah. her husband uh, how old she looks and she's trying all these various ways to look younger and the movie eventually turns into a very like the genre elements really come out. There's like some kind of horror body horror, almost elements in it. And uh, mm-hmm. it pushes uh, a lot of different uh, filmmaking techniques and like kind of styles to the fore as it goes along. So I think it also obviously in, in some ways is a genre film. So and it's kind of what he has done for a while, but I think this movie is, uh, I don't know, a, a, a nice return and uh I don't know. I, I feel like this is the kind of movie Locarno normally programs, like these kind of a uh, cult a tour visionary directors who don't, you know, they're they're not working all the time and they they make these very dense yeah objects to kind of uh, pour over for another ten years until he makes another movie. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, exactly. It's like here's another thing, you know, the, the kind of like I'll just leave this here. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we have to deal with it. We have to cope uh, after after that. I, yeah, I can't quite tell now, but I, I think it is a movie that that could could become a flashpoint for discussion. Sure. Yeah. So yeah, Medea, Alex Zeldovich. Um, I don't know where that's going. I didn't actually see whether it's surfacing in uh, in TIFF or, or not. 
I haven't seen it for sure playing anywhere yet again. I know Vengeance is mine is playing at TIFF, um, mm-hmm. so, it's, so that's good. But I don't know. I don't know about the others at least right now. Yeah, yeah. Well, we've covered a lot of uh, a lot of ground, a lot of films. I, I mean, I know there's still probably like a couple more titles that people are curious about. I don't. I'm kind of hesitant to get into them too much because I don't really want to dismiss them. I wasn't, you know, over the moon um, about them. I think, you know, like uh, the Bertrand Mondico film After Blue. I mean, I'll just say, I guess I'll wait to see that in a theater um, <laughs> with with an audience because I did have a feel that it was something where I kind of wanted to be with a group uh, going through it and almost responding to the screen in, in a way. I don't know. Maybe that's maybe that's the way that that movie I, works i don't know yeah it's a uh i think a purposeful kind of midnight movie mm-hmm. type uh, i mean it is a midnight madness i believe in tiff it's definitely one of those movies that it's a beautiful movie to look at but yeah one you definitely probably want to see with the with an audience because after about 15 20 minutes of it i was like oh this is nice but it's it is what it is for another two hours so <laughs> yeah yeah so yeah get the catalyst of, of an audience in there um, and then another movie, you know, in case people are curious, was the uh, Axel Roper film. Petite Solange. Petite Solange, which, I mean, all I'll say about that is that it's it's basically a divorce drama with a girl who's dealing with her parents slowly, it's kind of drifting apart. Um, and the salient detail for me was that it is, at the moment someone uses a cell phone about 25 minutes in, is the first time that you realize it's not set in the 70s <laughs> because everyone is wearing the 70s period dress. And that for me is no joke, actually kind of one of the interesting things, most interesting things about it because it's like it's set in the mood. It's like filtered through it. Like there's something about the the moodiness and the moroseness that also felt 70s uh, to it. Yeah. So in a sense that kind of worked. Uh, so I'll say that for that movie. I don't know what you felt about that. I thought the movie was nice and pleasant. Um, I like a lot of Repair's movies. Yeah, me too. I think the thing this movie was missing, though, was uh, kind of that fantastical element, or you get that kind of with that weird temporal disorientation, but there's no, like, uh, she usually uses kind of these strange, magical things in her movies that wasn't here. This is kind of more of a straightforward uh, kind of family drama, which was all which was pleasant and nice, and I think was it's worth watching for the the young girl who's going through this uh, situation with their parents. But yeah, maybe not a major film, but I think pleasant enough and a, and a good filmmaker. Yeah. Yeah, that probably brings us conclusion of this uh, edition of uh, Locarno. Uh, obviously, we didn't cover all the films, so I'm sure there's you know more to, to discover. And also, uh, yeah, just want to underline, Jordan, you, you'll be programming, I guess, some films. You don't have to reveal which, uh, but uh, for... <laughs> hopefully some of the ones we talked about. <laughs> hopefully some of the ones we talked about. That's great. Um, for Locarno in uh, Los Angeles, what part of the year is that again? Just to remind people. Um, it's usually the following uh, spring. We did it in February um, last year, which turned out to be a great idea since the pandemic happened a month later. Ah. But uh, so <laughs> we might want to do it as soon as possible. Yes. <laughs> I think there are plenty of worthwhile films and to bring them to LA and I hope... You know, a lot of them will hopefully end up in New York, I'm sure, at some point. Um, although I don't know if any are in New York yet that has been announced so far, at least. So yeah, we shall see. And, you know, always good to repeat that, you know, I think when we say like, oh, there aren't any or there are not a lot of name directors, it's more just about like, that's more descriptive, I think. I think, you know, we yeah 
unfortunately the world we seem to live in it's that people require names but like the reason we talk about these movies is so that people you know know about them and will follow these directors and you know maybe five ten years down the line these directors will be names as well (laughs) yeah well alexander zeldovich is a name for me but probably probably not for a ton ton of other people but uh, yeah yeah there are there are those big auteurist uh, or kind of like the under the radar auteurist films that i think are in here you just have to kind of dig a little bit yeah so uh, yeah, keep a lookout for Locarno in LA, and I'm sure we'll be talking about another festival selection soon enough. As always, thank you, Jordan. It's been a bit of pleasure, and I'm glad you were able to rest in one place for a while. <laughs> yes, thank you. I, I appreciate it, and yeah, I'm looking forward to talking to you again soon. You've been listening to The Last Thing I Saw with your host, Nicholas Rapold. If you like what you heard, please consider signing up at rapold.substack.com. Special thanks to the Minarets for the opening music from their song, Montserrat. Thank you for listening. (laughs) ¶¶